Today we're going to be able to, uh, to talk a little bit about Moses and his story. And it's a fascinating story. I just absolutely love the story of Moses because it is like talking about us. Moses is so normal and human. I love it. His story is, is, is about we see the best of him and we see the worst of him in the scriptures. And his story, though, where it separates out from us is that it's not just about surviving all that he went through, but it truly is about right, being raised above all odds. One of the places that we see, and it's you know what I am fascinated about with Moses, is that in spite of all of his faults and his foibles, God still works through him. God calls him, works with him, redeems him, not once, not twice, not even just more three times, but many, many times, continues to redeem him throughout the course of his life. Let me set the stage a little bit as we talk about Moses and as we get into our scripture passage of the morning. Moses, and this is where he sort of differs from us, was born into slavery. He survives a period of genocide when Pharaoh was killing all of the Hebrew boys. He is quickly then plucked out of the water and brought into the Pharaoh's own palace. I don't know of anybody that was raised in a palace here, but perhaps you were. Raised by Pharaoh's own daughter, educated in the palace with all of the priorities and privileges that go with that. Then, as he grew up to be a young man in a very fit of rage, he kills an Egyptian. Now, I have never killed an Egyptian. I don't know if you ever have either. But Moses did, and so now that he's done that, he is now becomes a fugitive, and he runs because he is wanted for murder. He flees to the land of Midian, where he marries the daughter of a very prominent landowner, and he begins to settle down for a nice, quiet, happy life. Then one day, a perfectly regular day, he's taken his sheep, his goats, his out to the, to the desert to walk, to walk them. And Moses has an encounter with God that it will change him forever. And here, if you want to follow along in your Bible, it is in uh, Exodus 3. We're having some technical glitches, so we're not going to see it on the screen. So we get to go back to the word in our Bibles in front of us, under the pew, wherever you find it. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and then I'll keep reading a little bit more. Moses was, taken, was taking care of his flock for the, his father-in-law, Jethro. Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. The Lord's messenger appeared to him in the flame of a fire and in the middle of a bush. And Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it did not burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out to see what is this amazing thing and find out why the bush is not being burned up. Now, If you're in a hot environment and it's very, very dry, it is very natural and normal to have spontaneous fires that will break out. Brush fires will begin everywhere. Very, very normal. But this was not normal. We don't know how long it took Moses to realize that, hey, something else is going on here. This bush has been burning a long time, and yet it's still there. It has not been consumed took a while to register for him that something else was going on. What we do know is that it did get his attention. His curiosity was piqued, and this was no ordinary brush fire. God was preparing to speak to Moses. 
Now, it's a very small point in Scripture, but it is significant because it is there. And it is the fact, and that's what I find so fascinating, is that the bush that God set aflame was not right in the middle in front of Moses, so he'd have to stumble over it, but it was off to the side, one side or the other. God didn't choose that one where Moses had to stumble. He chose it so that Moses had to go out of his way to check it out. And Moses did. He needed to know more about what was happening, why it was going on, and so he came. God needed to get Moses' attention, just like sometimes he has to get my attention and probably has to get yours also. In verse 4, we continue to read. When the Lord saw that Moses was coming to look, God called out to him, out from the bush, Moses, Moses. God speaks. God breathes the words that they come from the center of the bush in a flame to Moses. And when Moses answers, the dialogue between them begins. Verse 5. And Moses said, I'm here. Then the Lord says, don't come any closer. You are now on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And God continues, I am the God of your father. I am Abraham's God. I am Isaac's God. I am Jacob's God. And Moses hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slavery. I have heard them crying and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them out of the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them out of the land and into a good place, a good land, a spacious land, a land that is flowing with milk and with honey. The land, home of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perzites and the Hevites, excuse me, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go now. Go now. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God had a plan. God had a wonderful plan. A plan not only to redeem Moses, but a plan to redeem the Israelite nation also. God's plan was to rescue them out of slavery, to deliver them into a new land and a brand new life. God's word came to Moses as a spoken word out of that bush, outlining the plan that God had, was about to put into place. Free the people out of slavery, calling Moses in his life to be a leader of men and women. God has spoken the word to Moses on that hillside, and it came in the midst of his daily routine in his everyday life. He was no longer going to be a shepherd just to the animals. He was now the leader to a nation, and he was a servant of God. You don't have to flip, but trust me on this one. In Exodus 19, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. In verse 1, we read, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. So they've now been traveling for, 30, or for three months. Three times 30 is 90 days. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, God, again, is talking to Moses at, to the top of the mountain. Mountain calls him up there. 
Moses has now freed the people. They are with him. They are there. They're out of, out of Pharaoh's hold. They have been traveling and traveling and traveling. It's not been a smooth journey, not without its hiccups. How difficult is it for you to get your family out of bed, fed, and on the move on the morning? How many have more than six in your household? Yeah, see, nobody. Can you imagine trying to get thousands going and moving at the same time? Not easy, but Moses is doing it. We skip to verse number 17 in that 19th chapter. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up and it was like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. God speaks again through the spoken word to Moses and the people. Now, the next five chapters of Exodus, you can read those at home on your own. God proceeds to give the instructions in great detail how the Israelites are supposed to live their lives, how they're supposed to behave behave toward one another and toward God, how they are to worship. And Moses goes back and forth between God on the top of the mountain and the people, bringing them and telling them what it is that God has told him. Flip to chapter 24. The Lord said to Moses, come up with me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments that I have written for your instruction. God, again, speaks the word, but now the word, the spoken word, becomes also the written word. The instruction will now be clear. It's not being passed just from voice to voice, from person to person. What can you remember as you pass it along to the next? Now it is not just the spoken word, not just the oral word. Now it will be also the verbal word or the the written word. Again. We skip a few more chapters to chapter 32. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back, handwritten by God. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved now onto those stones. All was going well. As Moses begins his descent down the mountain. But down below, trouble starts. It's going again. It's been going on ever since Moses got to the top of the mountain. The people have forgotten the ways of God already. Even though before Moses went up, he said, are you with me? Will you follow me? Will you do what God wants you to do? Will you do what God is asking us? And they said, yes, we will. We will do that. We're with you 100%. But while Moses is up at the top of the mountain, the people have made an idol out of gold, and and it is in the form of a calf. And now, as Moses comes down, they have broken that first, uh, first commandment. And when Moses approaches the camp and sees the golden calf and the dancing, his anger begins to rise again. And as his anger begins to rise, he takes those stone tablets that are in his hand, he throws them to the ground and shatters them. Now, have you ever tried to take some piece of glass and put it back together? 
not so easy. They are broken and shattered in a way that they cannot be reconstructed. Broken before the people because of Moses' anger at the people. God's written word, just as the verbal word before it, came with instructions for the people, the instructions to teach them and to guide them. The instructions were there in their relationships with God, their worship, their relationships with one another. Every aspect of their life now shattered before them. All because of anger and his response. Fortunately, Moses' story doesn't end there. It's not the end of the relationship that Moses has with God. Because God's plan has not been carried out yet. Moses, or God doesn't cut Moses out of the plan to rescue and deliver the Israelites. He continues to work through Moses to bring them to rescue. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 5, if you want to follow along. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one, no one is to come with you or anywhere else near this mountain. Not even the flocks or the herds may graze in the front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stones of tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stones of tablets in his hand up to the top of the mountain. And God again wrote. God rewrote what he had written before. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed his name. Again, I am the Lord. This time, the tablets with God's writing on them, God's written word, made it safely down to the bottom of the mountain and were given to the people. Now the law, the commandments were for the people are, are in written form. They are now the written word that all might see. You and I don't have to carry the tablet. You and I don't have to go to the top of the mountain. We've got the written word in our hands available to us in the pages of our Bibles. We've got them on our telephones. We've got them on our iPods. They're available to us every moment of the day. They are God's living word. God spoke in the midst of that burning bush. God spoke on the holy ground privately to Moses, laying out the plan that he had. God spoke, telling that plan of delivering Israel out of slavery. God spoke the words again to Moses on Mount Sinai. God spoke in the midst of fire and of smoke. And then God wrote. And God rewrote the words that we now know as the Ten Commandments. We have the living word of God. It has been given to us. It is ours to use. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you so much that you have indeed given us the word, not just in writing, not just in spoken word, but also in writing, that we might see it day after day after day. And so, Lord God, help us to look to that word often, frequently, 
and to bring it into our own hearts and lives. We pray this in your most precious name. Amen. Two things I want to tell you before I begin this part of the message, part two. The first is, I want to especially recognize the people on this side of the congregation today because their seats taken in the front. You are great. Thank you. I'm so feeling so good that I'm not alone up here standing before you. Over here, not so good. We have a few heroes in the front, but just these are the least used seats in the church. They are freshly comfortable. Just be aware of that. But thank you. Thank you. And I know that you will come through. I know you will. And the other is Pastor Diane, who did a wonderful job with the Moses section of today's lesson, didn't really give it to you like it should be done as the rabbis did it during the days of the Old Testament. In the days of the Old Testament, the rabbis would speak sitting down, always sitting down. So she got that part down really well. But the people who were listening all stood up. You didn't do so good there either. But then again, this isn't the Old Testament anymore. So thank you for your great words, Diane. The sermon notes section in your bulletin is there, and there's some blanks to be filled in. I wanted it to be a little more interactive today, if possible, so you have a chance to uh, get the key words, at least three of them. Let me begin by saying, breathing is essential to life. That's not a new thought for anyone, is it? Breathing is essential to life. It is a gift God has given us. We rarely think about it until right at this moment, because you're thinking about it, because I mentioned the word. Take a deep one. Let it out. One more deep one. You know when we usually think about breathing? If we have allergies, if we have asthma, if we have emphysema, if we jump into some deep water and we get turned around and we're not sure which way up is and it seems like a long ways away. It's when breathing becomes difficult, we think about it. There's another part of breathing that is challenging. That's called bad breath. Bad breath is very challenging. It's challenging for the person who has it because they wonder why people are backing away. And it's challenging for those who receive it because they need to back away. It's just not a good moment. I'll get to that at the end of this message today. In several places in the Bible, we find that the absence of breath means the end. Genesis 25.8, then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. Or from the gospel of Mark chapter 15, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Breathing denotes being alive or not alive. The Bible mentions the breath of God only four times, just four times. So today we're going to look at those four times very quickly as we discover the centrality of the Word of God, the first mark of a church that is healthy and missional. Point number one, it is the breath of God that gives life. The breath of God that gives life. We read in Genesis chapter 2, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life 
and the man became a living being. He had made this man out of dust and dirt. So the nose was there, the nostrils were there, everything was there, and he breathed into that lump of stuff, and that's when it came alive. That's the life-giving breath of God. God's breath is what made, makes us live. And as God's final creative activity, the creation of men and women, God stops and rests. He didn't get tired. It wasn't that he was out of breath. It was that he'd completed everything. This is it. This is what I've made. I like this. He called it very good. That's God's breath. God's breath shows up again in the writings of the prophet Ezekiel. He's walking through a valley in a vision, and all it is is a valley of bones. It's all of us without skin and sinew and all the other parts that hold us all together, just bones, scattered bones, bones that don't even belong together, but they came from the same being sometime long ago. Very dead, very dead, very dead. And we read in Ezekiel, These words, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you. You will come to life. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. And he did. He did some other stuff too. But the reality of life came in the breath of God coming into these bones in Ezekiel 37. So point one, It is the breath of God that gives life. Two accounts of it in the scripture. Point number two, it is the breath of God that gives us the Holy Spirit. The evening of Jesus' resurrection, he was with his disciples in Jerusalem. This is after he'd taken a stroll to Emmaus with a couple of guys and then comes back to Jerusalem. He's been walking a lot, as much as 18 miles that day after he's raised from the dead. And then we read these words. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. His breath imparts to them the Holy Spirit. That was the new birthing moment for the disciples. In reality, this was them coming into real life. They'd had life before, but now real life was going to begin. He was energizing them with the presence of the Holy Spirit who would begin to indwell them and transform them. This happens to everyone who receives Christ. This is God's plan. The Holy Spirit enters, takes up residence in us and begins to transform us, empowering us to be like Jesus in every possible way. In Acts 2, we see the powerful effects of the breath of Jesus as the apostles and other believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and Jerusalem is mesmerized with what's happening and more than 3,000 people come to Christ and believe in him and receive that same infilling of the Spirit that day. Can you imagine what that would have been like? That's a whole lot more people than us this morning. And they all come alive on that incredible morning. Amazing, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's task in Christians is to transform us into Christ, 
to be like Jesus in character, to be like Jesus in attitude, to be like Jesus emotionally, so the things that excite him excite us, the things that make him weep make us weep, to be like Jesus behaviorally, like Jesus. When Jesus described to his disciples the work of the Holy Spirit, he made it clear. The Holy Spirit will never point to itself. It will always point to me. Always to me. That's his job description. God breathed into us the life to make us into his image. He breathed into us the Holy Spirit so that we could become like him in character. But the breath of God is mentioned one more time. Point number three, it is the breath of God that gives us the scriptures. The Apostle Paul is writing his second letter to his student, Timothy. It is filled with a lot of encouragement, as Paul always did in his writings to Timothy, and it gives great advice. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God breathed into these scriptures. He breathed into the people who wrote it, beginning with Moses, and he breathes into the people who read and study it. God breathes into the scriptures and the readers and the writers. And these scriptures are useful. Actually, they are essential for us in living our lives. First thing we need to note, Paul writes the Bible to inform us because it teaches us. And in the text we just read, the first thing it does, it identifies error. It shows us that which is not correct. For example, the Bible clearly teaches we're not to get even. We're not to pay back one thing for the, something done to us. The Bible teaches very clearly that is not a behavior of those who follow Christ. We can go on with so many things that it informs us about not doing things we should avoid, boundaries we should not cross. And those are important to note. So it identifies error. That informs us. It teaches us. But it also teaches us to fix error. For example, here's what I want you to do. Follow my example, Jesus says. And here's one of his examples. He's like this. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the example we're meant to follow. So it tells us the correct way. It doesn't just tell us, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. It doesn't just do that. It tells us the right way. Or another time where Jesus says, follow my example, and here's his his words. Where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. But then very carefully directs her. Now, go and sin no more. But Paul also writes, the, Paul writes that the Bible is meant to form us, not just inform us, but form us. It trains us in righteousness, equipping us and empowering us to do what is right with God's grace in our lives. Later on in Ephesians, Paul writes this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service, 
so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is a simple workout technique. This is a workout. Listen to it. He has a workout plan, equipping us for service. You want to be in God's partnership and working out what he wants done in the world? Service is the way that's done. So he's given us a workout. He's also given us workout instructors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are the workout folks. They're the ones that wear the tights. Oh, don't don't get it out of your mind. Not going to happen. But they're the ones that lead us in the workout, help us to get the workout going. And that happens here all the time. There's so many opportunities for service and wonderful leaders to help us do those services in which we learn the grace of Christ actively in the lives of people in our community and around the world. So we have a workout plan. We have workout instructors. And he has a goal in mind. Listen to the goal. Unity, not as a goal, but as a result of the faith and knowledge of Jesus resulting in maturity in that we do become really like him. And that's what unifies us. Unity is never a goal. It's a byproduct. But being like Jesus is the goal. And unity will be the byproduct of it because Jesus will show himself differently in each of us because we're all different human beings. It is through the Scriptures and the indwelling Holy Spirit that God chooses to accomplish this in our lives. So what do we have with this? Three simple things. First, we do nothing to get the creating life breath of God and be alive. We do nothing for that. It happens to us. God does it. It's a gift. We surrender to Christ in order to get the redeeming breath of God. But do we do anything? Not really. He does it. We just receive it. We say, okay, I I believe that. And that redeeming breath comes into us and changes us. It's a great exchange. Jesus breathed his last so we could breathe our first. In the third one, however, there's a partnership. We study the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit allow those scriptures to be applied to how we live. That's how we get the transforming breath of God. The breath that begins in creation is sealed and magnified in redemption, is now fulfilled in the Holy Spirit in transformation. A healthy church pursues Christ. A healthy Christian pursues Christ. And Christ is most fully pursued in the study and the application of the Scriptures. A missional church pursues Christ's priorities in the world. A missional Christian pursues Christ's priorities in the world. And Christ's priorities in the world are most clearly spelled out in the the Scriptures. The earliest people in the covenant church asked the question, where is it written? In other words, what does the Bible say about it? Why? Because they knew that the mark of a healthy and missional church was the centrality of the Word of God. It is our centerpiece. It's why it's in the middle of the table. It's under the cross where the living Word himself, the Logos, gave himself for us. But the living Word is what gives us all the information 
and all the help with formation by the Holy Spirit. May it be a mark, even more profound mark in the life of this church, the centrality of the Word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, make the life of the Scriptures enliven each of us. Give us a passion to read and study what you have for us in them. And empower us to be made more vital as you breathe in and through us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.